There's MSNBC. One hour ago posted. It's absolutely the, the best analogy. Um, from my vantage point, there are two things going on here in terms of his uh, in terms of his Anthony approach, public approach Colby. to this case. The first um, is him trying to delay the case. Delay, delay, delay is the name of the game. And um, I've been around legal circles for a while, and I will tell you, most defendants who are innocent and want to have the trial as quickly as they can so that they can be proven innocent in a court of law by a jury of their peers and move on with their lives. So that should tell your viewers everything they uh, need to know about the strength of the government's case. And to your, uh, to your point, my second point, the court of public opinion is um, where he is trying to um, make his strongest argument. Um, using the language that we talked about, incendiary language we talked about earlier in the segment, which is literally um, threatening to tear our country apart, Amen. My hope here, and I know you've written an op-ed, you've written commentary on this, um, is that uh, his trial will be televised so that all the public and the world can see um, what he tried to do to overturn American democracy. I think that uh, transparency is the best way to fight back against the misinformation that continually comes from Donald Trump and his allies. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, that speaking of his allies, Olivia, jail. I mean, we keep hearing from, uh, from him, from Trump and his allies that this is not going to be a fair trial uh, that's in D.C. and it's compromised, um, that you know it's mainly of Democratic voters, and that the judge is an Obama appointee. Uh, listen to what Lindsey Graham and Ron DeSantis oh, are saying. Bless her heart. Any conviction in D.C. against Donald Trump is not legitimate. You could convict Trump of uh, kidnapping Lindbergh's baby in D.C. You need to have a change of venue. A D.C. jury would indict a ham sandwich and convict a ham sandwich if it was a Republican. And the irony, which doesn't seem to be lost on Ron DeSantis and Lindsey Graham, is that the classified documents trial is taking place in a Florida city that voted overwhelmingly for Trump with a judge he appointed, not a previous Republican president, but he himself, Trump appointed. Help me understand Lindsey Graham and Ron DeSantis's logic where they think that is fair and yet the other is not. Well, it's a classic right-wing talking point that they're espousing, right? I mean, it's the way they undermine the situation here in D.C. That's what they're pushing out to their followers and their viewers. And that's how they convince their followers and voters that, oh, this is not going to be a fair trial from the start. But look, it doesn't change the facts. It doesn't change the legal situation. It doesn't change the fact that Donald Trump is being held accountable for having broken the law. And look, I'm unclassified, exactly. The classified documents case. Also, by the way, you and I, if we had taken classified documents, anybody, I served in national security for 20 years, I would be sitting in jail right, right now, right? There'd be no questions asked. There would yeah. be no nuance on this. Unfair preferential treatment. know the truth about that. So, like, let's just level set here for all of these yeah, people of and all these Republicans who continue to kind of tie the, the masters of the spin, right? Yeah. But I think it's, again, um, it's the most effective strategy because right now they have nothing else. They have nothing else that they can push out there except for continuing to undermine the situation, undermine our judicial system, which they're, you know, that's the only lever they have. Because the reality is some of these people were complicit in this situation. 
they right? spent, yeah, they spent years undermining our elections. Now they're spending years undermining the judicial process, and uh, it's only just getting worse from here. Um, Anthony Apoli, Cynthia Alexany, Olivia Troy, thank you to the three of you for joining us and starting us off tonight. <laughs> I think her moves today set the tone for how she plans to see this case throughout. And, and what do you make of how today's string of legal news unraveled quite rapidly, I would argue? Right, and continues to unravel because the president, uh, the former president, continues to tweet in violation of her order. Which, you know, I feel sorry for the lawyers because they obviously have no control over their client. He's either completely deranged because a woman of color is telling him what to do, or he's purposely trying to um, push her to do something um, that he can raise money on down the road. I mean, it's shocking that he was told not to retaliate against a witness, and that's exactly what he's done on the Pence tweet. And he was told not to interfere, and that's exactly what the, the threats that he's made are, are doing. And when she when she says we expect a report by Monday, and his lawyers say, "I'm sorry, we don't think that makes sense. We want more time." But then they have time to go on five television shows tomorrow morning. That's going to do nothing but enrage her. The one thing that the judge has absolute control over is his count, her calendar, and when that trial date is. And the one thing Trump really wants is to delay the trial. And what he's going to find out is this trial is not going to be delayed. She is going to push it and push it very hard uh, to be done before the election. Uh, you bring up a really important point, and we'll dig into it a little bit about the lawyers for Trump here. But let me just ask you really quickly, as Cynthia, to explain to us, to myself and viewers, uh, the difference between a protective order, which is what the special counsel is actually asking for here, and not a gag order. Um, how do those two differ? Well, the protective order was something that just said. Hey, y'all. My name is Tierra. And a little thing that I love about the Chick-fil-A spicy chicken biscuit is that it has the perfect amount of spice. Well, the protective order was something that just said you're not going to, you aren't going to release the information about about the witnesses a gag order actually is stronger which is you are not going to speak on x y or z uh, topics uh, and th what's really on, also on the table here is you have violated your terms of release and maybe you are going to go in the back in handcuffs i mean that's where we are on this she, if he continues to push her she may very well put him in the back uh, if it was a regular person amen if you had done this if Amen Nawadeen yeah. had violated terms of, of the release, the, the manner in which Trump had done, you would be sitting in the back in handcuffs eating a really bad cheese sandwich. <laughs> and the only reason why he's not doing that is because of politics. Yeah, and, and I'm so glad you bring so up that point because his allies... Every guy who's arrested, every person who's arrested in this country would be sitting in the back eating a cheese sandwich. And because this guy has gotten away with it for so long... Yeah. And because there is so much strife in the country, it is a very difficult situation for her to manage um, 
him as a defendant and she's going to have to walk very carefully. I was going to say really quickly, and sorry to step over you, but to, to your point, what we have seen time and time again, when his allies say, oh, Trump is not receiving equal treatment, I would argue he's actually receiving special treatment because of who he is, because he is an ex-president, because he is now a presidential candidate. He is getting away with things that me or you or any other normal citizen would never have been given the privilege to both in terms of the, the legal pace of this, but also just politically speaking. And I, I want to get your thoughts, Anthony, specifically about the special counsel here, because in the in the special yeah. counsel's request, they cite how Trump has quote previously issued public statements on social media witnesses uh, on social media about witnesses, judges, attorneys and others associated with legal matters pending against him. So it seems to go without saying that this motion was necessary from the DOJ's perspective very early on. It was absolutely necessary, Amen. And they moved um, with the speed that we have all come to expect from Jack Smith. To Cynthia's point, right now we have, on the one hand, a very aggressive uh, prosecutor in Jack Smith. The DOJ would say, we pursue justice without fear or favor. He is absolutely doing that. And importantly, he is uh, in that independent. He is not um, some left-wing ideologue that Donald Trump is trying to make him out to be. Now, to the second point, uh, Judge Chutkin, she is well-known in legal circles as someone who is fair to all sides, but she also has a reputation for being tough. Uh, I would note, Eamon, I, I think um, I've seen some uh, commentary from you, perhaps, that earlier in some of her January 6th cases, she sentenced defendants who were found guilty in her courtroom to even more time than the government requested. So just chuck it, she, she's the real deal. She has a reputation for having fidelity to the rule of law, and she's not going to be afraid of Donald Trump. Uh, Olivia, you were on uh, this network earlier today. You mentioned how Trump's third indictment is actually the culmination of a man who's run his entire life on lies. Um, you are someone who worked in the White House, who saw the inner workings of these lies. What are your feelings as you see Trump, you know, and his delay tactics here denied? Well, it's classic on whom he is, right? I mean, this is a man who thinks he is untouchable. He thinks that he will get away with everything and anything. And I think you're going to continue to see him deflect. You're going to see his inner circle of advisors deflect. The whataboutism that continues that you're seeing play out, they'll double down on it. They'll attack people that they think they're threatened by. You know, he, I just saw he's out there attacking Mike Pence still today. Um, but this is what he does. And look, I, I think that protective order, as someone who has been doxxed personally by members of uh, Trump's own cabinet, I'll tell you, that, that's something to be taken very seriously uh, because this is who these people are and they will try their best to intimidate witnesses. They'll put information out about any of these individuals, whether it's the judges, jury, anything like that, any of that private information, any information that they can use as a tactic and as a dog whistle to some of his more extreme followers who will take action or spread it or do anything or engage in those threats 
they will do, and they will do it time and time again. That's that's how these people behave. You know, Cynthia, some of us have described this as the most important case um, facing our democracy just because of what it uh, portends as an outcome. I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether we are being hyperbolic uh, with it. I mean, obviously, the other case, national security is just as important with the classified documents. But this case really, as I said in my introduction, is more than just about Trump. It is about the rule of law. It is about democracy and whether or not we get a future authoritarian leader who may think twice about trying to overturn an election. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, the idea that we can't have a peaceful transition of power in this country alters the country completely. You know, I'm a big Democrat. I've been a Democrat my whole life. But I always go to all the, I always, because I've lived in Washington, I go to all the inaugurations. I went to Reagan's, I went to Bush's, and I stand outside and cheer. Because it's so magical and in our country that we have a peaceful transition of power. And now we don't have it anymore. We've had it since Washington, and we don't, it's gone. And... Uh, we've lost our innocence in that way as a country, and that's what Trump has done for us. And the only way to get it back is to assert that the, the rule of law is going to control and we're going to go back to those democratic norms. And the first thing that has to happen is this: that there has to be a conviction in this case. And it looks to me, after reading the indictment several times and even listening when Ali, I even listened to it when Ali Belshi uh, has read it, I did both because it's so important. Uh, th this indictment is overwhelmingly strong. And as soon as he gets to trial, the sooner the better, and we can begin to put our country back on the path of, of you know, an organized, decent democracy where we have values and when the loser uh, concedes and has a speech and says they love the country and they go to the inauguration of the next person and the Democrats and the Republicans come together on that day and cheer our country. But step one is a conviction in this case, and it is very important that it happens quickly. Uh, Olivia, let me ask you about somebody you know well, Mike Pence. Um, he's obviously played a very important role in this as we are learning. He was mentioned several times in the indictment, and we read in detail how time and time again he denied Trump's request to overturn the election. What do you make of his fair-weather stances on Trump, at least certainly what he says in public and what he's been doing behind the scenes? And when the indictment came down on Tuesday, he said that anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never never be president, but the very following day, he placed blame on Trump's lawyers. Well, I think that clearly tells you where the Republican Party's base is. It is the party of Trump. And so I think Pence finds himself consistently walking a fine line here between standing up for himself, which I think he should be more aggressive about and telling the truth about what happened since he lived it. And he is a key witness in this case. He lived it firsthand. I think the thing is here, I mean, Trump knows this. Uh, Pence is the one person who can really take him down because he's lived it. And not only has he lived the January 6th and the lead up to it and everything that happened when it came to this particular case, but he's also lived all four years of that administration. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. Many of us saw the mm. good, the bad, and the ugly with him. And I think that, you know, I think Trump is actually worried. And I think, you know, for Pence, I think he should just stop waffling. I think when he does that, he makes himself look weak. I know that he's lost a lot of confidence from other Republicans who just want him to take a stand or moderate voters. And even just across the American people, people wonder why. The truth is on his side. Where, I mean, you've got, you've got that going for you, right? You did nothing wrong. You followed up. You, you, you stood your ground on that day, which really mattered for our country. So yeah, why continue and, to walk on this? Go ahead, Anthony. 
And I was going to say, this is why this protective order is so important. Right before we came on air, we saw a post on Trump's social media account where he attacked um, Mike Pence yet again for saying that Mike Pence, um, if I can back up for a second and just briefly tell this story, in early January, he tried to pressure Mike Pence yet again um, to overturn the election. Pence refused, and Trump's response was, you're too honest. Can you believe that, man? This is where we are. And when I, when I um, re-read that in the indictment, and then when I just um, heard what Olivia was talking about in terms of being doxxed, this is somebody, Olivia, who was telling the truth um, in Dozens and dozens of witnesses in this case have um, been subpoenaed. They're telling the truth, and they are at risk of being intimidated by, um, by this president who is using language that we tend to see from deposed leaders in third world countries, that we tend to see even from mobsters. He was the one who just said, um, if you come for me, I'm coming for you. That's the language that we hear from mob bosses, not former American presidents. And what's also incredible, um, Anthony, is when you kind of read the indictment, as our colleague Lisa Rubin has pointed out, the effort that uh, Trump and Jeffrey Clark at the DOJ went to try and convince other officials at the Department of Justice that there were election uh, election fraud allegations, which ultimately never proved to be true or never substantiated. It just goes to show you to what degree they wanted to weaponize the Department of Justice against our elections. Uh, please uh, stick around, everyone. We've got a lot more to discuss. We're going to squeeze. Uh, early voting is underway in Ohio for a special election on Tuesday that could have major implications for reproductive rights. But in order to explain this moment, we actually have to go back to February for a moment. That is when activists proposed an amendment to the state's constitution that would codify abortion rights, ensuring, quote, every individual has a right to make and carry out one's reproductive decisions. By the end of last month, amendment backers had gathered more than 700 thousand signatures, nearly double the required amount, forcing a referendum on the matter, which is now set for November 7th. But as you can imagine, there is a catch here because Republicans introduced a ballot measure of their own called Issue 1 that would make it harder to pass constitutional amendments, increasing the threshold from a simple 50% majority to a 60% one. And Republicans pushed for a special August vote on the measure in an effort to influence the outcome of this November abortion rights referendum. And that brings us to next week's special election. Ohio voters will decide whether to make it more difficult to pass constitutional amendments. And as you can imagine, it is a make or break moment for abortion rights. A new USA Today poll found 58% of Ohio voters backed guaranteeing access to reproductive services for both sides that is cutting it close. Now, zooming out to abortion right battles in other states underscores really how key this threshold could be. While abortion rights won in all six states that had measures on the ballot back in 2022, in four of those elections, the majorities were just under or under completely 60%. I would note, Eamon, I think um, I've seen some uh, commentary from you, perhaps, that earlier in some of her January 6th cases, she sentenced defendants who were found guilty in her courtroom to even more time than the government requested. 
So Judge Chuck Kinsey, she is the real deal. She has a reputation for having fidelity to the rule of law, and she's not going to be afraid of Donald Trump. Olivia, you were on uh, this network earlier today. You mentioned how Trump's third indictment is actually the culmination of a man who's run his entire life on lies. Um, you are someone who worked in the White House, who saw the inner workings of these lies. What are your feelings as you see Trump, you know, and his delay tactics here denied? Well, it's classic on who he is, right? I mean, this is a man who thinks he is untouchable. He thinks that he will get away with everything and anything. And I think you're gonna to continue to see him deflect. You're gonna see his inner circle of advisors deflect the whataboutism that continues that you're seeing play out. They'll double down on it. They'll attack people that they think they're threatened by. You know, he, I just saw he's out there attacking Mike Pence still today. Um, but this is what he does. And look, I, I think that protective order as someone who has been doxxed personally by members of uh, Trump's own cabinet, I'll tell you, that, that's something to be taken very seriously uh, because this is who these people are and they will try their best to intimidate witnesses. They'll put information out about any of these individuals, whether it's the judges, jury, anything like that, any of that private information, any information that they can use as a tactic and as a dog whistle to some of his more extreme followers who will take action or spread it or do anything or engage in those threats they will do, and they will do it time and time again. That's that's how these people behave. You know, Cynthia, some of us have described this as the most important case um, facing our democracy just because of what it uh, portends as an outcome. I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether we are being hyperbolic uh, with it. I mean, obviously, the other case, national security is just as important with the classified documents. But this case really, as I said in my introduction, is more than just about Trump. It is about the rule of law. It is about democracy and whether or not we get a future authoritarian leader who may think twice about trying to overturn an election. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, the idea that we can't have a peaceful transition of power in this country alters the country completely. You know, I'm a big Democrat. I've been a Democrat my whole life. But I always go to all the, I always, because I've lived in Washington, I go to all the inaugurations. I went to Reagan's. I went to Bush's. And I stand outside and cheer. Because it's so magical and in our country that we have a peaceful transition of power. And now we don't have it anymore. We've had it since Washington. And we don't, it's gone. And uh, we've lost our innocence in that way as a country. And that's what Trump has done for us. And the only way to get it back is to assert that the, the rule of law is going to control and we're going to go back to those democratic norms. And the first thing that has to happen is this: there has to be a conviction in this case. And it looks to me, after reading the indictment several times and even listening when Al, I even listened to it when Ali Belshi uh, has read it, I did both because it's so important. Uh, this indictment is overwhelmingly strong. And as soon as it gets to trial, the sooner the better. And we can begin to put our country back on the path of, a, you know, an organized, decent democracy where we have values. And when the loser uh, concedes and has a speech and says they love the country and they go to the inauguration of the next person and the Democrats and the Republicans come together on that day and cheer our country. But step one, 
is a conviction in this case, and it is very important that it happens quickly. Uh, Olivia, let me ask you about somebody you know well, Mike Pence. Um, he's obviously played a very important role in this, as we are learning. He was mentioned several times in the indictment, and we read in detail how time and time again he denied Trump's request to overturn the election. What do you make of his fair-weather stances on Trump, at least certainly what he says in public and what he's been doing behind the scenes? And when the indictment came down on Tuesday, he said that anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president, but the very following day, he placed blame on Trump's lawyers. Well, I think that clearly tells you where the Republican Party's base is. It is the party of Trump. And so I think Pence finds himself consistently walking a fine line here between standing up for himself, which I think he should be more aggressive about and telling the truth about what happened since he lived it. And he is a key witness in this case. He lived it firsthand. I think the thing is here, I mean, Trump knows this. Uh, Pence is the one person who can really take him down because he's lived it. And not only has he lived the January 6th and the lead up to it and everything that happened when it came to this particular case, but he's also lived all four years of that administration. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. Many of us saw the Mm. good, the bad, and the ugly with him. And I think that, you know, I think Trump is actually worried. And I think, you know, for Pence, I think he should just stop waffling. I think when he does that, he makes himself look weak. I know that he's lost a lot of confidence from other Republicans who just want him to take a stand or moderate voters. And even just across the American people, people wonder why. The truth is on his side. I mean, you've got, you've got that going for you, right? You did nothing wrong. You followed up. You, you, you stood your ground on that day, which really mattered for our country. So yeah, yeah. why continue hey, to walk hey. on this? Go ahead, Anthony. Amen. I was going to say, this is why this protective order is so important. Right before we came on air, we saw a post on Trump's social media account where he had. Grab this free gift from female. 100% legit. Don't miss out. deodorize your carpet false baking soda can only absorb odors many carpet smells come from a source that you'll need to tackle visit angie.com to get more value when you complete your home projects she don't need no old media account where he attacked um mike pence yet again for saying that mike pence um if I can back up for a second and just briefly tell this story, in early January, he tried to pressure Mike Pence yet again um, to overturn the election. Pence refused, and Trump's response was, you're too honest. Can you believe that, yeah. man? This is where we are. And when I, when I um, read that in the indictment, and then when I just... Um, heard what Olivia was talking about in terms of being docs. This is somebody, Olivia, who was telling the truth. Um, and dozens and dozens of witnesses in this case have um, been subpoenaed. They're telling the truth, and they are at risk of being intimidated by, um, by this president who is using language that we tend to see from deposed leaders in third world countries that we tend to see even from mobsters. He was the one who just said, um, if you come for me, I'm coming for you. 
That's the language that we hear from mob bosses, not former American presidents. And what's also incredible, um, Anthony, is when you kind of read the indictment, as our colleague Lisa Rubin has pointed out, the effort that uh, Trump and Jeffrey Clark at the DOJ went to try and convince other officials at the Department of Justice that there were election uh, election fraud allegations, which ultimately never proved to be true or never substantiated, just goes to show you to what degree they wanted to weaponize the Department of Justice against our elections. Uh, please uh, stick around, everyone. We've got a lot more to discuss. We're going to squeeze it. Uh, early voting is underway in Ohio for a special election on Tuesday that could have major implications for reproductive rights. But in order to explain this moment, we actually have to go back to February for a moment. That is when activists proposed an amendment to the state's constitution that would codify abortion rights, ensuring, quote, every individual has a right to make and carry out one's reproductive decisions. By the end of last month, amendment backers had gathered more than 700,000 signatures, nearly double the required amount, forcing a referendum on the matter, which is now set for November 7th. But as you can imagine, there is a catch here because Republicans introduced a ballot measure of their own called issue one that would make it harder to pass constitutional amendments, increasing the threshold from a simple 50 percent majority to a 60 percent one. And Republicans pushed for a special August vote on the measure in an effort to influence the outcome of this November abortion rights referendum. And that brings us to next week's special election. Ohio voters will decide whether to make it more difficult to pass constitutional amendments. And as you can imagine, it is a make or break moment for abortion rights. A new USA Today poll found 58% of Ohio voters backed guaranteeing access to reproductive services. For both sides, that is cutting it close. Now, zooming out to abortion right battles in other states underscores really how key this threshold could be. While abortion rights won in all six states that had measures on the ballot back in 2022, in four of those elections, the majorities were just under or under completely 60%. Hi, chào mọi người, chào mừng mọi người về một loại đồ uống đó là một cốc cà phê như thế này đó. bên dưới thì là màu cốc này. bên trên thì là nước cà phê sử dụng màu nâu và nước kem mình sử dụng màu trắng như thế này và à, với với họa tiết cốc trang trí này thì mình sử dụng các mũi kép đơn và mũi đơn cơ bản với phần phía trên này thì mình có sử dụng một mũi đó là mũi BO hay còn gọi là mũi PAP Mũi PAP này thì chúng ta được tạm bởi 5 mũi kép đơn trung chân trụ đầu đó Và mọi người xem chi tiết cách móc Ở trong video mình hướng dẫn cách móc họa tiết trang trí cà phê này nhé Và nếu mọi người thích họa tiết này thì bây giờ cùng mình chuẩn bị những nguyên liệu và dụng cụ cần thiết để chúng ta có thể móc được họa tiết này nhé Và chúc mọi người sẽ có một sản phẩm thật là đẹp và thật là xinh nhé Bây giờ thì chúng ta cùng bắt tay và thực hiện thôi. Ta cần chuẩn bị những nguyên liệu về cổ sau đây khi móc đầu hai kéo kim câu đánh dấu. Nên chúng ta màu màu trắng, màu nâu và màu hồng. So about knitting in like Cambodian or something. Hello darling. Let's go back to Mars touch. Play this large strain so I didn't get to see the um legal Saving with Liberty Mutual Mom. They customize liberty, your car insurance liberty, so you can liberty, liberty. You can save seven hundred dollars just by switching. Oh.
This week, Donald Trump indicted again, arrested again, fingerprinted and arraigned. That's right. A Washington, D.C. grand jury returned a four-count criminal indictment against Donald Trump in connection with special counsel Jack Smith's criminal case for Donald Trump's crimes relating to the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection. First, let's talk about the indictment, the counts, the co-conspirators, the surgical precision with which special counsel Jack Smith crafted this indictment in order to get a 2024 trial before the election. Next, let's talk about the federal judge presiding over this case. The judge who was assigned is none other than federal judge Tanya Chutkin, along with the magistrate judge up at the Yaya. Law and order judges, Trump's worst nightmare. And these judges who are the complete opposite of Judge Eileen Cannon, down in the Southern District of Florida, they are already moving this case forward in an expedited manner. Then, let's talk about the arraignment before the magistrate judge where Donald Trump pled not guilty. What went down inside the court? What went down outside the court? And let's talk about the next major hearing set to take place on August 28th and the warning that was given to Donald Trump by the magistrate judge, which doesn't seem like Donald Trump has followed. By the way, Popak, did you see that the Democrats in the House of Representatives, led by Congress member Adam Schiff, sent a letter to the administrator of the federal courts requesting that all case proceedings be televised? Not sure they're going to allow it, but I'm glad that Democrats at least are asking for transparency. Then let's turn to the frivolous defenses that Donald Trump's attorneys have been parading to the media. They're claiming this is a freedom of speech issue. It's an advice of counsel issue. They were relying on John Eastman. And also Trump's lawyers are arguing that Washington, D.C. is not a fair venue. Popak and I will describe and explain why all of these defenses are just completely frivolous. And of course, Donald Trump can't control himself at all in what appears at least to me to be a direct violation of the magistrate judge admonition during the arraignment. Donald Trump made this post, if you go after me, I am coming after you. Well, shortly after that, special Jack Smith was like, bet, and immediately filed a protective order motion Friday evening that included that post in it. So then at around 1 a.m. thereafter, Donald Trump got scared and had his spokesperson respond that no, he wasn't threatening the judge or prosecutors. In the ultimate gaslighting, Trump's spokesperson said Trump was referring to the rhinos and the Koch brothers and the Republican donor class. That's who he was threatening. But federal judge Tanya Chutkin was having none of it, and she issued an order this morning requiring Trump to respond to the protective order motion by no later than August 7th, moving this case along. Talk about 
historic events, Michael Popak, and of course, another historic event to come. We're going to turn to Georgia, where barricades have been going up, and we expect a criminal indictment of Donald Trump by Fulton County District Attorney Tony Willis, which could come as early as this week. Michael Popak, a historic, historic week. Indeed. Indeed. How you doing, Michael Popak? <laughs> so great. I was just doing math while you were while you were going through our lineup today. Because when you and I two and a half years ago said, you want to do this thing at the intersection of law and politics called Legal AF? I said, sure. And I was worrying about content. We now have a, pre a former president who is four-time indicted, soon to be five-time indicted, for a total of 75 current felony counts. I think it's actually 78. 78 felony well, counts. 30, 30, well, 37, 34, and 4, right? Uh, so far. So far. Am I missing something? Well, it's all right. I'll do my math. 37, 34, and 4. 17 convictions for his main organization up in, up in New York. So I'm at about 92, and we haven't even heard from Fawny Willis yet. And whatever the right-wing MAGO want to say, okay, 100 or more felonies against somebody is not a witch hunt. It's not based on prosecutorial misconduct or election interference in 2024 or a desire to cover up because Hunter Biden did bad, bad things when daddy wasn't looking, or whatever else they're trying to link in some perverse, logical, illogical fallacy. It has to do with the conduct of one man while he ran for office, while in office, and after he left office. And nobody's, no one is to blame for this hundred plus felonies and counting than Donald J. Trump, and the J stands for John, apparently based on comments he made in his arraignment. So, Popak, let's get into it. Let's talk about the indictment that was uh, filed um, on Tuesday. It is very detailed. Ironically, it is 45 pages in length. It has four counts that I want you to get into. But Special Counsel Jack Smith in this uh, indictment, I think really narrowed and focused these issues. You and I had been speculating that if Special Counsel Jack Smith wanted to, this could have been a thousand count indictment. This probably could have been a five thousand count indictment. Special Counsel Jack Smith could have brought charges for money laundering, for wire fraud, for campaign finance violations relating to the various political action organizations that Donald Trump used to commit crimes. But when you do that, what you open yourself up for is you have forensic accountants come in, economists come in, massive troves of financial discovery, tens and millions of documents, thousands, tens of thousands potentially, of witnesses. So what does all that mean? Time. That means time. And that a case could take years, as much as five to ten years, to go to trial with some of those really complex financial cases. So, Special Counsel Jack Smith knew that, Michael Popak, and he made a surgically precise case. 
Jack Smith had to hold back criminal counts, thousands of them, in order for the greater good of our democracy to do everything he could to position this case for 2024. Of course, you're going to go through the various counts. You're going to go through the co-conspirators. I'm going to make one other observation, though, here, because we're going to talk in a little bit about the defenses, talk later in this episode, about the defenses that are being paraded to the media by Trump's lawyers. Special counsel Jack Smith, in addition to quoting people and evidence and all of these things, he predicted in the complaint what Donald Trump's lawyers were going to be saying as part of their PR campaign and what they were going to be saying um, as one of their defenses. And he addressed it right here in paragraph three. Right away, he goes, Donald Trump had a free speech, right? I want to acknowledge that from the very outset. Special counsel Jack Smith said the defendant had a right like every American, to speak publicly about the election, and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome-determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means, such as by seeking recounts or audits of the popular vote in states or filing lawsuits challenging ballots and procedures. Indeed, in many cases, Donald Trump did pursue these methods of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. And then it goes into where the crimes were committed, right? Where it goes from free speech, whiny, wham, Donald Trump, the election stolen, you know, and special counsel Jackson, you have a First Amendment right to be a whiny fascist baby, but what you don't have the right to do is then weaponize those lies and then engage in conduct that constitutes a conspiracy to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. Paragraph 4. Shortly after election day, the defendant also pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. In so doing, the defendant perpetrated three criminal conspiracies, a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government. Two, B, a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1512K, and see a conspiracy against the right to vote, to have one's vote counted in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 241 Popoc. This is a detailed complaint, state by state, goes through the battleground states, the specific conduct, quotes from former Vice President Pence, Quotes from people in Donald Trump's inner circle showing Donald Trump knew, showing intent. What were your major takeaways? Let's yeah. dig into this indictment. Yeah, and let's let's do it um, at a high level and at a molecular level. You are so right that this is the product, this indictment, of prosecutorial decision-making and affirmative choice about what to put in the indictment that was necessary to indict 
and show the weight of evidence that's required to support an indictment, the indictment itself, the, the uh, criminal counts of an indictment, and what was unnecessary to put in the indictment, both in terms of people at present and facts and allegations and themes and narratives and timelines that will, however, end up in a courtroom when the evidence is presented. Not everything, to remind people, not everything is put into an indictment. Not every piece of evidence, every scrap of testimony, every nuance, every narrative, every timeline ends up in an indictment. The prosecutor has to strike a balance, and this has been surgically struck by, by Jack Smith and his team to put in what is necessary in a speaking indictment in this way, in a conspiracy-based indictment in this way, to make out the elements of the crime and to put the defendant on notice as required by the Constitution of what he's being charged with. But no more and no less than that. The rest, the rest, is truckloads, or what I like to call shedloads of information, evidence, and testimony that's both provided to the other side in the discovery process, we'll talk about that in a little bit, and presented at trial through witnesses, oh, like people like Evan Corcoran, um, and others, Giuliani, and Eastman, and Boris Epstein, and Ken Cheeseborough, and Sidney Powell, and the rest that are currently in this indictment, um, co-conspirators, not in the caption, not as defendants. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So we have that approach, and you could tell the decision-making tree, or decision-making rule for Jack Smith was as follows. If I don't have hard evidence corroborated multiple times by, by witness testimony and documents, I'm not putting it in my indictment. So, for example, we always thought, and it's like you and me and people that do this for a living, Ben, and we did it, that off the Jan 6 report in December, Jan 6 Special Select Committee on, on all things Jan 6, that when they said that Donald Trump weaponized that crowd on January 6th, on purpose, starting with his tweet, be there, it's going to be wild, that this was part of his strategy to, when all else failed, attack the Capitol, stop the peaceful transfer of power, attack our democracy, and stop the electoral certification process. Jack Smith did it a different way. It's still in there. It is still one of the three or four major components of the conspiracy we'll talk about them here on this on this hot take i'm not on this podcast just so many hot takes with you i forget where i'm at but the 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 way that jack smith did it because you can tell he didn't feel he had the complete dead to rights evidence on this issue is not that donald trump is being held responsible for starting lighting the match that lit the flame that led to the explosion that attacked the capitol which is how the Jan six committee portrayed it He's saying that it started, almost like passive voice, it happened. The Jan 6th, they left the ellipsis, others skipped the ellipsis altogether in the speech, speechifying by Donald Trump and Eastman and Giuliani and others, and they went right to attack the Capitol. But what, what Jack Smith said is once that happened, Donald Trump and his henchmen and those around him, Eastman, Clark, and others, and Meadows, used that use that attack to their benefit to also use as a cudgel, as a club, to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So it's a little bit different. It's not that they started it, but once it was in progress, they, they jumped on board and used that attack 
And so that's why the count is listed there. The conspiracy elements are still the same. They're the, the tried and true elements that we saw in the Jan 6 report. You know, shout out and kudos to the Jan 6 committee. You've got the use, the fundamentally the heart of the indictment, the use of the fake electors, the development of the fake elector scheme by John Eastman, um, implemented by lawyers like Captain of Team Crazy, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell, and Ken Cheeseborough, and and then on the ground, the ground game of collecting all of these uh, fake electors, making sure in the battleground states these these uh, uh, anti-patriots met in secret in basements, signing what they said were electoral certificates for their state, put wax seals on it, and quill pens, and then how to deliver it both to the National Archive and Mike Pence, the next step in the chain. That was coordinated by conspirator number six, and that's got to be Boris Epstein, somebody that we've talked a lot about on Legal AF, as being a lawyer for Donald Trump, sort of this year's Michael Cohen, a fixer, a, a, a guy that was is, is brought in Todd Blanche as the lawyer, sits at council tables, but not this time, at arraignment, we'll talk about that later, and considers himself to be some sort of political operative. He's there on the right in the picture, whispering into Nosferatu, I mean Giuliani's ear, in his three-piece, ever-present three-piece suit. Boris Epstein also ran the ground game to collect and coordinate the collection of all the fake electors. So the fake electors, and then you have the last component before you get to the Gen 6 insurrection and the use of that to stop the peaceful transfer of power, which is the pressure campaign on Mike Pence. Mike Pence, who's running apparently on a campaign right now for president, that relies on, and to quote or paraphrase him yesterday, nobody is above the Constitution. And anyone that tries to say they're above the Constitution should not hold a presidential office. And anybody that tries to get me to put them above my oath to the Constitution should not hold constitutional office. That's apparently his, his campaign message to voters. It's not going well, I'll just put it that way, in the Republican Party. The things that were missing that were interesting, but I think will show up in the actual trial of the case, were things, Ben, that you and I had talked about, like the December 8th meeting in the White House, the, what Cassidy Hutchison referred to as uh, things are gone, you know, the wheels have fallen off and things have gone crazy in the West Wing. A screaming match involving Rudy Giuliani, um, uh, the overstock, or what I call overthrow.com guy, Patrick Byrne and Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn yelling and trying to convince then-President Trump to both suspend the Constitution, implement martial law, and seize voting machines until Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, getting wind of the meeting, ran into the meeting to break it up and started questioning, why is everybody here? How did you all get in here? What are you doing here, overstock guy? And what are you talking about? And Eric Erschman following behind and telling Donald Trump he couldn't do it. That consideration of seizing voting machines, I assure you, will end up in a trial. It's just not something that Jack Smith felt he needed in order to make out the elements of his three separate conspiracies, but interrelated conspiracies that form the basis of the indictment. The one that we knew was coming because, you know, let's be honest, there's been strategic leaks. I know Karen, our Freeman Agnifilo, our co-anchor, disagrees with me on this, but there's been strategic leaking. And so we knew that the Section 241, 18 U.S.C. 241 claim, was going to be used in a very creative way to argue that the use of the fake elector certificates was, in effect, 
stuffing the ballot box, the electoral ballot box, with fake votes. And that kind of voter or vote fraud is handled with a law that came out of our reconstruction after the Civil War, in which a law was passed to ensure, you shouldn't have to have this law in the books, because the Constitution should be enough, but there needed to be a law to protect newly freed slaves in their ability to exercise their right to vote. And that body of law 241, which is the driver for this indictment, for me, also comes out when you have that very um, perfectly put um, uh, ruling by uh, Judge um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, in which he said, everyone, everyone, Republican, Democrat, independent or otherwise, is entitled to a fair count of their vote. Everybody should be up in arms. If having voted, your vote has been, this, uh, has been, the tally has been tampered with. And nothing tampers with the tally of a presidential election more than the ultimate thing that gets him the, the seat, White House, which is the electoral vote. We're an electoral vote country, not a popular vote country. So the popular votes are important only when you get to the electoral certificates, the electoral, the, the electors voting. So that is the ultimate steal. You, 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 popular vote, schmopular vote. Let's go right to steal the electorals. That's never been done before. And there you have section 241. But you're so right, and Karen was so right, when she said, we're going to see a two or three count indictment with very little other people in there because this case has to get to trial. And now we got the judge to do it before the election. One last thing, Ben. We're not done, as I said in a recent hot take. This is not a going out of business sale for Jack Smith. As he said in this press conference, there's more to do. We're still investigating. That's one. Two, witnesses are being pulled in. In this, this month, this grand jury is still in business. They did not shut the door and put up a gone fishing sign. And what we're going to see, obviously, because history is prologue, is two different things. And we'll continue to watch it only one place here on the Midas Touch Network. One, we're going to see a superseding indictment again. He got enough to get this thing out after nine months. Kudos to Jack Smith. He's got three, three indictments against Donald Trump in nine months, two in Mar-a-Lago, one here. But he's not done. Superseding indictment is likely against Donald Trump. But other co-conspirators being indicted individually in their own independent cases is also likely. It's either going to be some combination of John Eastman, who's not cooperating, Rudy Giuliani, who's barely cooperating, but when he, on his podcast, he tells the world he's fully in favor of Donald Trump every way, shape, and form, Ken Cheeseborough, who's not heard from too often except through counsel, Boris Epstein, who flew on the Trump jet to the arraignment, sat in the back of the room during the recent arraignment, and flew home with the president after the former president after the arraignment, He's likely to get indicted, and Sidney Powell. One or more or all six of those will likely be indicted in their own cases, on their own trial tracks, on their own thing, not consolidated and combined with Donald Trump's trial, in at some other later date, and we'll continue to report. You know, I think that the proceedings before Judge Eileen Cannon in the other case where Donald Trump was criminally indicted back in June for the willful retention of national defense information, um, as well as obstruction of justice and conspiracy and making false statements, I think the assignment to Judge Eileen Cannon 
what she is doing there actually has also informed the strategy of how to pursue the case against Donald Trump for the crimes that he was just charged with here and whether it was going to be a more expansive case, a shorter case. I think that special counsel Jack Smith, like I think you and me, um, believe that you can't trust Judge Eileen Cannon. So even though there's currently a May 2024 trial date, with all of the things that she does, you know, is that really the date, May 2024? On the other hand, in a little bit, when we talk about the judge who was uh, assigned this case, we'll talk about it a little bit, Judge Tanya Chuckin, law and order ju judge, no-nonsense judge, the only judge in D.C. who's actually sentenced uh, January 6th insurrectionists to greater prison sentences than even what the DOJ asked for. Judge Tanya Chutkin has previously been on a case in D.C., federal court filed by Donald Trump. She made that big, big ruling, the first big January 6th committee ruling, came from Judge Tanya Chutkin, where Donald Trump filed an injunction to try to block the National Archives from turning over to the January 6th committee all of the records that were uh, made and produced and created during his administration, that first tranche of records, that was like the first big January 6th committee battle. Trump filed an emotion, a, a case for an injunctive relief, trying to block the committee, trying to block the archives, and in a very powerful order back in 2021, which you and I talked about back in 2021, as well as the Chutkin sentences, so legal AF viewers will know Judge Tanya Chuckin, but in that 2020-2021 ruling, she says, presidents are not kings. Donald Trump is not the president. These documents don't belong to him and turned him over to the January 6th committee over Donald Trump's executive privilege assertions. And that began a whole series of losses for Donald Trump where he probably lost, I'm not making this number up, probably close to a hundred, maybe 200 other assertions of executive privilege before other D.C. federal judges. But Judge Tanya Chutkin was the first, and we'll talk more about her. We'll talk more about the magistrate judge in just a moment. But just a few other places in the indictment that I wanted to talk about, just so everybody could get a sense of how precise this is written. Like, if you go to paragraph 90, for example, and this is the section that talks about Donald Trump's threats to former Vice President Mike Pence. And by the way, Pence is a witness. I mean, just think about that, that you're going to have the, he's testified before the grand jury, you're going to have a former Vice President as one of the key fact witnesses against Donald Trump. And so I'm just going to read you one paragraph, for example, but this is what a jury is going to hear. It's going to hear the following. On January 1, Donald Trump called the vice president, berated him, because he had learned that the vice president had opposed a lawsuit seeking a judicial decision that at the certification the vice president had the authority to reject or return votes to the states under the Constitution. The vice president responded that he thought there was no constitutional basis for such authority and that it was improper. In response, the defendant told the vice president, you're too honest. You're too honest. Within hours of the conversation, the defendant reminded his supporters to meet in Washington before the certification proceeding, tweeting, the big protest rally in Washington, D.C. will take place at 11 a.m. 
on January 6th, locational details to follow Stop the Steal. And I very much believe that testimony comes directly from Pence. Also, we saw Donald Trump's lawyers kind of parading out this thing that all Donald Trump did was ask Pence to do was to pause the electoral count. It was just a pause. And Pence has already been interviewed saying, you know, in the past 48 hours, saying, no, it wasn't a pause. He wanted me to overthrow the election. Now, Pence has no spine at all otherwise, but, but Pence over the past 48 hours has said, no, it wasn't a pause. He wanted me to overthrow the election. That's what he was asking me to do. And Pence is going to testify that. One more paragraph that I want to show you just how in the weeds Special Counsel Jackson is, because I, I could spend probably five hours going through this today, but I'm not going to do that. This is an abbreviated summary and, and, and discussion that we do here on Legal AF. But, you know, Jack Smith goes to every battleground state with the exact same evidence that I'm going to be, you know, sharing with you here, but for each state with the state officials. You go to paragraph 81. On the afternoon of January 3rd, co-conspirator 4, who's Jeff Clark, Popak you identified, spoke with a deputy White House counsel. The previous, the previous month, the deputy...